Hello, everyone, and welcome to another very exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, the world's best murder she wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm your co-host, TJ West. And today we are talking about season two, episode nine, Jessica Behind Bars. TJ, you want to give us a quick summary? I shall, and I've been advised to keep it brief by my co-host, so I shall endeavor (laughs) to do so. Um, So, as the title suggests, this episode features our very lovely Jessica Fletcher landing behind bars to lead a, basically, writing class for female prisoners. But, during the course of all this, someone ends up murdered, and Jessica, as tends to be the case, discovers who it is and uncovers this whole like scandal and basically embezzlement scheme within the prison that was responsible uh, for the murder or was the motive, I should say. Um, so that's your short summary. Not very revealing, but I had to do the best I could on the fly. So, okay. So let's maybe let's expand a little bit on that to start. So um, Jessica is going to teach a writing class in prison, and we know this isn't a regular deal for her because there's a little bit of dialogue that indicates someone named Margaret usually teaches the class, and she's not well, and so Jess is filling in. And um, I, I remember watching this when I was a little kid, and it made me want to teach creative writing classes in prison, which is still kind of a goal of mine. That is one of the most Bridget things I can possibly imagine. Um well, I know someone who used to teach art in a juvenile prison, and it was infinitely rewarding. I know. I just, I, I'm giving Bridget a little bit of flack because she is a very tender hearted person. <laughs> I would even go so far as to say she's a bleeding heart. Oh, like, if you think it. He would. He would. He would say <laughs> that and more. But, you know, what I think is really interesting, um, of course, Jessica goes to do that, but she has no security of her own, even though right. at this point she's like a millionaire. And then the prison is, like, woefully understaffed with guards. Yeah, I just – we'll get to this in a minute, but I just – you could tell this was a low-budget episode. Like, yes. it's trying to show a riot and the National Guard and, like, these things that require people. Right. And big sets. And there's, like, three guards. <laughs> it's just – like, this is the worst prison ever. Yes. Uh, but speaking of Bleeding Heart, I'm actually glad that you brought oh, that up. In, in I didn't bring compassion. that up. You brought that up. You yeah. – accused me of being a bleeding heart well what i'm getting at is that jessica (laughs) like really takes to this role and like she's very compassionate and very encouraging Mm -hmm. of the prisoners like there's no sense that she looks down on them for being yep criminals or anything like that like she just takes to them immediately she praises their writing um she says you know i loved all of your stories and just like and you know and you know she means it in her own way right no matter how poorly they were written you know she found something good in those stories. Right. She's not lying. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm saying is Bridget is a lot like Jessica Fletcher. Like that's Aw, shucks, that's, boo. That's, that's the, sweet. Yeah. So Bridget is one of is one of the most generous people when it comes to finding goodness in others. Oh, um, thank and you. I, and so I appreciate that about Jessica, that as we have seen so many other times previously, that she is willing to do the same. And she, I mean, like, it just there's an, a warmth and a sort of charisma mm-hmm. that she radiates in these scenes that I really give Lansbury so much credit for allowing us to believe that Jessica, you know, who by all rights, should probably be a little bit at least condescending, if not downright uncomfortable, given her, you know, sort of small town upbringing, you know, traditional atmosphere that she grew up in. But she just has a a warmth of soul that transcends that, that transcends the kind of person that she could be or that we might have expected. And, you know, she didn't just phone in the substitute assignment. Um, She tells us in the first couple of lines of dialogue that she's 
read everyone's stories in advance. She even remembers names associated with stories. So she meets the prisoner, Mary, who's going to be really important to this episode and is like, oh, I remember your story, you know. So she's um, she's just really diligent. But what I think is interesting is that the topic that she's going to talk about is um, the perfect crime. And there's a little bit of humor here because she gets out some chalk and she writes the perfect crime on the chalkboard. And these prisoners who were totally uninterested in anything she was saying up until then immediately scramble to get paper and pens so they can write down, like, so they can learn how to commit the perfect crime. And it's all very cute and cheeky. But, um, again, I think this is the worst prison ever. Like, if you know people who have been incarcerated, they are so censored on what they can talk about what they can learn, what they can read, what books they have access to, because anything that might encourage criminal behavior is prohibited, right? So I'm skeptical that she would be allowed to teach a class on this topic and that they would all be allowed to write stories about committing crimes. Right. A little bit of creative license, perhaps, on the part of the show showrunners. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so then... Um, we have Mary, our key prisoner, played by Linda Kelsey from probably people know her best from The Big Chill, but we also saw her last season in the episode where Jessica became a congressperson. Um, she sneaks out of class, and we've heard her talk to the doctor about how one of the prisoners who's in the infirmary is in a lot of pain. And we see Mary go to her and comfort her, and she's trying to steal medicine to help the prisoner in pain. When the riot alarm goes off, the riot locks fall, trapping everybody in various parts of the prison. And uh, it turns out the doctor is found dead in her office. So it looks kind of like Mary killed her in order to get the drugs. And then everything goes really sideways because there's a prison riot. And then the rioters are like, you know, basically taking the prison warden captive. And it's a whole big thing, which I mean, I do appreciate that like there's this prison riot narrative that helps to sort of crystallize the really unpleasant conditions in prison. Like, I mean, as you say, like the limited budget of this episode doesn't really allow us to drill down really meaningfully into the like abject conditions of prison that we might have seen it. Say this were like yeah. a made for TV movie or even like a big screen movie. But I do appreciate that we at least get a gesture toward, you know, not, not perhaps prison abolition, but there is a real sense in which these women are just justifiably aggrieved. And even the warden herself admits as much. Like, she speaks extensively about how she's worked really hard to get funding for the prison in the few months she's been there to try to make it better for them. Which, of course, nobody believes. The warden seems right. really suspicious, and she's our kind of red herring suspect for a while. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to add on that note, Tej, I felt as, um, as skeptical as I am about the production values of this episode – the screenwriting here is just dynamite. I mean, good mm -hmm. screenwriting is all about a continuous ratcheting up of tension. Like really, when that's the first thing you learn in screenwriting class, there has to be conflict and the conflict has to escalate throughout the story. Otherwise, people lose interest and the characters lose motivation. And I think this episode does that so beautifully. So first we have the riot locks down. Then the prisoners start to riot and they take the guards' guns. So now the threat is JB and the warden are being held hostage. Then we get the lieutenant governor and the lieutenant governor says, you've got till morning or I'm sending in the National Guard. So now we have a countdown, right? And the tension is climbing because we have to rush to solve the murder before the National Guard comes in and assume, you know, presumably like people will die. And then at various points, we have the token angry prisoner, Kat, um, who's played by Adrian Barbeau. Who is famous for being in Maud. 
who is famous for being in Maud. We have so many famous people in this. Um, and Kat, I think, is, uh, uh, they do really well using that character. So at times she believes Jessica and she's like, okay. And then she doesn't believe and she's getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And as she gets angrier, she's potentially more volatile. And the prisoners mm-hmm. at this point have the guard's weapons, you know? So it's like, she wants to shoot her way out of the prison. I mean, she's ready to get everybody killed just for a chance at freedom. So it's, I, I just think it's so well written that you feel the palpable tension here of the strain that everyone is under, both the prisoners trying to figure out how to get out of this mess they've essentially created and the guards and the wardens and Jessica who are trapped by them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's also evident in like the acting styles. Like I'm thinking particularly of Adrian Barbeau, also famous for being in the fog, by the way. Um, like she, there is a sort of, it's just shy of campiness. Like, but she's clearly like relishing this, as you say, very heated, vol- emotionally volatile role. And I think that that's what gives it its sort of palpable tension in the sense that, as you say, that tensions are continuing to rise. It's like a pot on the boil, essentially. Yeah. That, you know, continues to grow much more intense with each passing episode. And it's even evident, even in Jessica's performance, like she grows more frustrated and, you know, more determined to try to keep um cat from sort of losing it completely like she's very insistent uh, and i i like that because it's a steely sort of persona that we don't always get with jessica mm-hmm. and i i like that we have these moments she's like you gave me your word she says to cat at one point that you know you would give me a chance to figure out who the murderer is and so i, I like that because we don't like i said we don't always get that particular image of jessica but it's clear that the atmosphere and the environment of the prison has sort of affected her too like she is recognize that that's the kind of person you have to be when you're within the walls of a prison. And that she is um, essentially what's holding this whole thing from exploding, right? And we have the guards and the warden on one Mm -hmm. side of this. We have the prisoners on the other. And it's Jessica that everyone has faith in. She's So it's really a reiteration of some of the things we've said about her as a character before, you know, that she is the one person everyone can put trust in, Mm -hmm. even in this incredibly difficult situation. They all agree Jessica will solve the murder and whatever she decides, you know, if one of the prisoners did kill the doctor, we will let the that person, you know, be taken to justice. If the prisoners are innocent, we believe Jessica will say so, you know. So everyone kind of believes that Jessica is so honest and so full of integrity um, that she's not going to throw this. Yeah. She's such an impressive – I mean, she's just such an impressive figure. She really is. Yeah. And- and I also liked her outfit in this episode. I wrote that down too. Obviously, she only wears one outfit because this whole thing takes place in the space of a few hours. And it's a, a long-sleeved brown dress with a split neck. Um, and it's like brown with like a little bit of a black diagonal, what do you call that, detailing to it. It's just very, it's a really lovely dress. This is why I always count on Bridget to do the dress and like the, the dress description. She has an, a, a true knack for capturing what the outfit looks she like. She also wears jewelry. Uh, and if you've ever been into a jail or prison, they usually tell you not to wear any jewelry or watches or have any accessories because they could get stolen or they could be yanked off you and used as a weapon or um, just as something that would physically harm you. So again, I think like... We just see Jessica, like, at the beginning, we just see her, like, walking into this prison. It's it's just very strange to me. I mean, true, but there is the moment where she goes through the, the metal detector, and, like, there is at least some... We can see a little glimmer that she's intimidated. Yeah, and I, that I did like that way, that opening scene that sort of gives you an idea of how dehumanizing prisons are, even for people who visit them. Like, 
Yeah, but this is not. It's, it's basically like airport security. Sure. And like 1980s airport security. Well, sure. I'm just saying there's a... It's not like a prison. Sure, I'm just saying that it's a gesture, at least, toward the, the, the dehumanizing impact of prison. It is. And I do like that we see that little chink in Jessica that like, oh, this is a little bit scary, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So ultimately, um, we learned that uh, there's been shenanigans all over the prison. Um, so TJ's favorite character, who we'll talk about in a second, is the cook who has been selling off the grocery supplies on the black market and pocketing the money, which is why the prison food is so terrible. And then the patients are lying in the infirmary in pain because the doctor's been diluting the pain meds and selling off the excess. And Jessica, of course, uncovers all of that. So actually, the warden who looked really suspicious is actually trying to bring reform and catch all these people in the act. And it was her secretary who was involved in the scandals. And her secretary is the one who murders the black market dealer and uh, tried to, what, I guess the doctor committed suicide because she was going to get caught, but the secretary was still kind of involved in that. She kind of made it look like maybe Mary had done it. Right, in order to deflect attention from her, because she was also bitterly resentful that she was passed over for the position of actual warden. What makes her such a great villain in um, in a murder she wrote fashion is that she is at first one of the most likable characters because she has sort of has a, a bubbly sort of old lady persona um, that you know we're not led to think that she could possibly do it especially since she's juxtaposed so sharply with Vera Miles's um, the actual warden who is kind of an iron lady kind of person yeah. like she has a, a sort of discipline she is very insistent that Mary is the one who committed the murder like she's not exactly sympathetic she's not bad either oh that's such a good way to describe her as an iron lady i love that description i mean she's very stern she's stern Mm -hmm. face hair swept up she's just not emotionally expressive yeah and the you know the the brisk outfit like the shoulder pads and the you know the and she's wearing like a suit yeah and the secretary is just like friendly and charming and then, but what's so remarkable is that when Jessica reveals all of this, like it turns on a dime and then she has this sort of, this icy hauteur, if you will. Uh, a little a little grace note of performance, I, sh- I think I should say. Um, that really sort of highlights how clever she's been at disguising her true persona this whole time. And what I also think is interesting is that um, we've spent all of season one talking about how Murder, She Wrote really likes to have as its murder victims the rich white guy who's sort of terrible, right? And his terribleness is ultimately his downfall. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are really, we don't, we're we're fading so far away from that in season two. I mean, here we have just greed is the motivating factor, right? Like there is nothing Mm -hmm. other than greed and bitterness, that has driven these people to steal from the prison and make these prisoners suffer. Yeah, it's quite despairing, quite frankly. You know, it's a, one of the, one of the bleaker episodes that we get. Um, that's you know, juxtaposed to say the Cabot Cove episode or something else. Like, there's just something really dark and sinister. You know, the yeah. very space of the prison itself, of course, is you know part of the reasoning for that. It takes place at night too, so it's like right. it's visually dark as well. Yeah, and I mean, like the violence is very palpable. Like the women are carting around very impressive arms like mm-hmm. i mean like weapons and so you know and it just seems like they could they're literally like a hair trigger like all it takes yeah. is one wrong move by anyone and this whole thing could just blow up catastrophically um and as it turns out as we know like cat is actually part of the whole thing too which is why she keeps trying to urge them to get out of the prison because she knows she would be safe because she would be the one next to the assistant warden and therefore would not be shot right 
So what I also think is interesting is that in its um, attempt to sort of tell us what life looks like inside a prison and what the conditions of justice are, we have Jessica sort of being the innocent mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's just a lot of lines that are like LOL lines that JB utters, but obviously there are it's because she's our point of view character and we're supposed to be learning from her. But, you know, Mary, Mary at first says, I murdered my husband and we're supposed to be scared of her. But later we learn it was because her husband was abusive. And one night he was drunk and coming home, presumably to hurt her or kill her. And so she shot him. And Jessica's like, well, surely you could have pled self-defense. You know, it's just a sort of innocence. Like, I mean, that's how justice works, right? Like, mm-hmm. and then another point, she says something like, well, why would the prisoners be compelled to riot? And it's like, oh, Jessica, come on. Like, prisoners in any prison are compelled to riot. Like, anyone who is trapped, caged for any reason, anywhere, will try to riot, right? Like, that's just what humans do. We strive for freedom. But she has these, like, really cutesy little moments where it's like, come on, JB. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just trying to, like, let us see, you know, that um, justice doesn't always win, like in Mary's case, and that, you know, there's bad in the world. Right, because, I mean, Mary responds to Jessica's, as you say, like, innocent white-eyed query to uh, to basically say, well, yeah, except I had a weapon and he didn't. And so, in the eyes of the law, that made me more culpable. And which is, you know, a really striking line, because, as you say, like, it demonstrates the extent to which the criminal justice system, which supposedly seeks out justice for those who have been, like, unjustly persecuted, sometimes is manipulated by a... Un- uh, bad actors, which is why Mary ends up in prison, even though by all rights she shouldn't have, since she was, you know, escaping yeah. from a, you know, a very perilous situation. And it's also made clear, like throughout the, there are other lines of dialogue from the prisoners that also reveal, like that they're not just cardboard cutouts. Like this, this episode doesn't have time really to give them all their due in terms of development. But we have, you know, the rather buxom one who says, you know, that's not why we started this. She's like the voice of reason to cat sort of inflammatory nature but we have you know several other prisoners who are just you know did something wrong and ended up here like i you know the episode doesn't Mm -hmm. delve into that a lot but we get because they come across as so sympathetic like i think that that adds Mm -hmm. a a layer of you know appreciation we have for the unfortunate plight these women are enduring right now i have just two other thoughts about the prison situation i mean one is that um as you're saying we don't get to know much about the prisoners but we do see them visually and uh it's noteworthy that there is only one black woman prisoner. The rest are white or at least white appearing. Um, I suppose some of them could be Latina, but we don't know. Um, And that obviously is not in any way reflective of the actual American penal system, which is where black women are overwhelmingly represented. Um, The other thing is because this is murder, she wrote, even though we know like things we're supposed to think like things like Mary going to prison are unfair that um, there's, they leave us with hope at the end, right? So all these prisoners have rioted and they've taken people hostage and threatened their lives. And Jessica's walking out of the prison at the end and is like, well, I really hope that they won't get in trouble for any of this. And the warden's like, oh, no, I'll make sure they don't, which is just not ever how things are going to happen. Right. And then um, we're also told that, like, even the warden is going to testify at Mary's parole hearing. So it's pretty clear Mary's going to get paroled as soon as she can. Right. Which is nice. I mean, it's... It's very nice. I mean, it's, as you say, not at all true to life. No way. Can you imagine prisoners taking over a prison and then everyone's like, it's chill, you guys. 
no extra time on your sentences. Particularly in the 80s, where, you know, I mean, Reagan, like many presidents before him, like Republican presidents before him, was very much on the tough on crime stuff. So, you know, in that sense, I mean, it's maybe a little more subtle than is sometimes the case with murder, but it is in a way an answer to like the, the tough on crime ethos of Reagan's America to suggest that there is something, there is a gentler, more compassionate way of <laughs> prison reform. Like... Maybe I'm pushing Kinder, the gentler. I feel like you're doing um, George H.W. Bush now. Yeah, right. Kinder, I, gentler. Yeah. America, yeah. So, I mean, because especially since the it makes such a point of repeatedly pointing out that Warden's sort of genuine, genuinely good nature and her genuine attempts to reform and make yeah. the prison better. Like, that's just a repeated mantra, both from her, but also from others in this in the episode. Like, so I think that there is a, an implicit critique, perhaps, of the general ethos of Reagan's America. I can't help but contrasting this with Orange is the New Black because it's probably the most popular contemporary story about women's prison, where we do have people who are trying really, really hard to improve conditions or at least make things just. And at every turn, they cannot succeed. The system is always stacked against them. And there's always punishment for prisoners, even when they haven't done anything wrong, right? That's just how it works. Um, And so this episode, although we say that it's very dark compared to most Murder, She Wrote episodes, it does have that sort of hopefulness at the end that is so important to the series. I I like that about it. I like that, you know, sometimes we do need just fantasies that, you know, that encourage us to believe the world does get better. Like, you know, there's cynicism or, you know, more subversive political messages have their place. But so does like fantasies like Murder, She Wrote, which, you know, can try to solve the prison problem within (laughs) within an episode. TJ is very cynical about cynicism. I am very very, I think it's more fair to say I'm very hostile about cynicism. (laughs) I am openly and avowedly hostile to cynicism. So let's talk about the guest stars, because I know you're going to get really excited. So maybe we should save her for last. But we have a lot of really interesting people in this episode. So we already said we have Adrienne Barbeau from Maud. And we haven't mentioned that we have Eve Plum, better known as Jan Brady, in this episode. Linda Kelsey as Mary, um, as we mentioned before. And then we have as the warden, Vera Miles. And I have to say, I was pretty excited about that. As a classic Hollywood aficionado, like, it's very exciting to see her. And by the way, she's still alive. That's what I also learned. So she was in The Searchers, the John Wayne movie from 1956. That's Bridget's favorite movie, by the way. It is not my favorite movie. Don't (laughs) tell people that. It's a racist, horrible movie. And then um, we also have, she's also in Psycho. Yes. So she's, I mean, she's kind of a big deal. And she's playing the warden here. Yep. Yeah, you know, and so I, I, I like that we have you know this homage to classic Hollywood, and then of course, and then of I'll course, jump, and then of course we have Yvonne DiCarlo, um, who also had a very venerable career in classic Hollywood, appearing in such movies as The Ten Commandments and the very funny comic western McClintock, but arguably most famous, at least I would think by this point, probably for being best li- known for yeah, being Lily Munster Lily in Munster. the Munsters, of course. Um, and I was disappointed that she didn't have more to do, but I will say that I love every minute that I get to spend with Devon DiCarlo, just because uh, for the voice, if nothing else, that horse, you know. She does have a really great voice, doesn't she? That horse husky, you know, deep voice that I think may have contributed to not being a big star. Like some people mm. could get away with it, like Lauren Bacall got away with it and became a big star. But women like Devon DiCarlo and, you know, some others didn't fare quite as well. But... I like that about her. And I, I like that she, this is the kind of role that she could just make so much of, just the sort well, of world Well, tell them weariness. what role she's playing. She plays the cook, like the corrupt cook who is, you know, selling 
the uh, hospital food, or sorry, the prison food to make money. And, you know, and we see her like sneaking some alcohol at the beginning, too. Yes. So I'll be like, there's just something delightfully like frumpy about her, but Mm -hmm. also something almost a faded glamour. Like you get the sense maybe she was a famous chef at some point. I don't know. I'm making up. This is my fan fiction. (laughs) That she was a famous chef before yeah and now has because of a scandal ended up being a prison cook they do have her looking very frumpy and even like her hair is tucked up you know because she's working in a kitchen but we have like messy pieces falling out but not in like a 2022 pinterest yoga mom kind of way like in a you look disheveled sort of way an overworked underappreciated yeah prison cook kind of way like this is that's i mean that she perfectly embodies that role. And I could even, I mean, just to sort of, you know, re- refer back to like the classic Hollywood movies of, of yore that were also about female presence and thinking of Caged in particular, like she seems like a character out of that kind of movie. Like that's mm-hmm. what I was thinking of. Like she's the kind of person you would expect to see in that old Hollywood, maybe a film noir, for example. I don't know. Just there's just something I he's love about like, her. You guys should see how much he's smiling right now. He's just <laughs> like really excited about you, Hunter Carlo. I am very, she is one of my favorite classic Hollywood stars. So, I don't know. I made up all sorts of reasons to love her, so. I have to tell you, I only know her as Lily Munster. I mean, that's where I first met her. And I I love Lily Munster. She's great. Yeah. But I I mean, she was quite a beauty. Like, you know, that's how she was often marketed. Because she plays, um, in the Ten Commandments, for example, plays a very lustrously beautiful person. Mm. Um, And like I said, there's always something. I mean, she has that glamour about her that classic Hollywood stars often have. Even when they appear in like their later career, there's still something intangible that sort of hovers around them, even when they're in a bit part like this one. I like the moment where Jessica comes in and tastes the food. Like, yes. God bless you, Jessica. Why on earth would you be trying to taste prison food? It's just horrifying. Like, of course, it's going to be vile. And then she's like, if this is such and such a dish, then it should have these ingredients and they must have gone missing, you know, like, oh, JB. But the other thing is, um, Teach, you know, we don't have any investigator in this. That's true. Like, we always talk about how Jessica does or doesn't mesh with the law enforcement. And it's it's just her in this. Right, which is all the more extraordinary since we're in a prison. <laughs> oh, you mean like, why aren't any of the prison guards or people involved in the investigation? Yeah, right. Yeah, like, in theory, they're, well, they're not trained in like investigating, I guess. They're just trained in like keeping people in line it's just i I guess you know in an institution that is devoted to the like you know policing of bodies one would expect that at somebody at some point somebody would would have some sort of familiarity with with you know accomplishing that well fear not because once that riot alarm goes off three whole cop cars show up out front so (laughs) this is what i'm saying in terms of low budget yeah, <laughs> the three cop definitely cars. doesn't see. Yeah, definitely does not seem in like, the very very tight exterior shot. That yeah, like we don't even get to see the whole building. Right. <laughs> I guess we're getting close on time. So what else do we have to say? Say whatever you want to say. We got plenty of time. Um, what else do I have to say? I don't know that I. Have. I mean, after I, I finished up with Von DiCarlo, I sort of sh- shot my shot. So I don't know. Von DiCarlo. I know that was so exciting. Do you know I was um I was at a surf music concert last night and they um played a surf version of the Munster theme song because it is so banging. I love their theme song. It's true. I actually much prefer the Munsters over the Adams Me family. too. The Adams family tries too hard. Yeah, and the Munster theme song is better. And point of fact, um, young tender twenty one year old me lost 
a lot of money in a slot machine once because it was monsters themed. And uh-huh. as the, as the, you know, the reels were spinning, it would play the theme song. And I just kept pumping quarters because I wanted to hear the theme song. It's a very Bridget thing to do. That's my Yvonne DiCarlo story. So what else do we have to say about this episode? That's actually germane to the episode. That's actually germane to the episode. Will you say more about um, caged and women's prison stories? Okay, so as I, you know, maybe to sort of give us a little bit of concluding, concluding material, I want to talk a little bit about the like the allusions to other prison films, um, particularly those that are dealing with women, because you know I alluded to Caged earlier, which if you've ever seen is very much a film noir, and there is, I mean, something a little bit at least quasi noirish about this particular episode, and there's even obviously. Some lesbian overtones, also a notable element of even classic Hollywood. There are? Yeah, when Mary's like, you know, talking to that patient and like the patient that's suffering from the pain and the and the, uh, the infirmary. You didn't get lesbian tones from that? I sure did. No, and I think everything is lesbian. I didn't get any lesbian overtones in this. I think that Kat is probably a lesbian. Well, yeah, obviously. I didn't get like. Really? I mean, I totally get it. I, when Mary was like, oh, well, you know, we... I was trying to defend her. Like, she goes, makes a point of, like, nursing her. Like, there's a clear chemistry there. Like, I assume they were lovers. What? I did not yeah. think that at all. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, that was my assumption. I mean, when Also, I think it, when the it's... warden is probably gay, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And probably the doctor as well. Okay. Oh, maybe it's a totally lesbian episode. I was going to say the, les- the lesbian <laughs> black doctor. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's also worth pointing out. That the, the doctor herself is black. But anyway, so that was what that was my contribution about classic because as I said, there's always something vaguely lesbianic, if you will, about prison films and women's prison films in mm-hmm. particular. But also, I think that carries over into yeah. this episode. Is that are the is there anything other like tropes from because like my experience of women's prison narratives is probably limited to um, erotica. Sorry, mom and dad, and um, that Lady Gaga. Beyonce video and Orange is the New Black. Right. So we're talking about a very limited set here. Um, but I'm just wondering what other sort of themes and tropes there are beyond the fact that if you put women in close proximity, they will develop same-sex attraction. I mean, there is obviously like, you know, the stern, not in this case, not villainous um, warden. Like that's also the, the trope that is most often mm. seen in, in these kinds of prison movies. Is it usually a woman warden? Oh, almost always. Because it strikes me that we we have no men in this episode, which we haven't even mentioned. That is true. We do not have any. There's not a single man. That's true. It isn't. It's, well, we know this episode passes the Bechdel test, don't we? I guess so. That's kind of cool. It's also yeah. un- not true, right? Because women's prisons have male guards all the time. Right. That's really cool now that I'm thinking about it. This is the best episode of Merge yeah. I love this episode. Yeah, it is quite good. I agree. What else we got? I don't know. Is that it? Yeah, it was TJ teach us about um, prison narratives moment. So, <laughs> so we go from what you're calling noirish and a really dark episode um, that shows us that the course of justice is not always true and not always successful to uh, a much more lighthearted, much more comedic episode next week back in Cabot Cove. We do. So we have that tone shift to look forward to. But I guess for now, that's going to do it for Jessica Behind Bars. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for the Cabot Cove Gazette. Uh, I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keys. And we will see you next week. 
Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.